Let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8, up through chapter 10, verse 4. And many of us are familiar with the early portion of chapter 9 of Isaiah's prophecy. In fact, it wasn't but a couple of years ago, I think, that we did a sermon series on those first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 9. But we're going to begin in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8. Let's give attention now to God's holy word. The Lord sent a word against Jacob, and it has fallen on Israel. All the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Therefore the Lord shall set up the adversaries of resin against him and spur his enemies on, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with an open mouth. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. For the people do not turn to Him who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore the Lord will cut off head and tail from Israel, palm branch and bulrush in one day. The elder and honorable, He is the head. The prophet who teaches lies, He is the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and those who are led by them are destroyed. Therefore the Lord will have no joy in their young men, nor have mercy on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, His anger is not turned away, but His hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns as the fire. It shall devour the briars and thorns and kindle in the thickets of the forest. They shall mount up like rising smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up, and the people shall be as fuel for the fire. No man shall spare his brother, and he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. He shall devour on the left hand and not be satisfied." Every man shall eat the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh shall devour Ephraim, and Ephraim Manasseh. Together they shall be against Judah. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune which they have prescribed to rob the needy of justice, and to take what is right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey, and that they may rob the fatherless. What will you do in the day of punishment, and in the desolation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your glory? Without me, They shall bow down among the prisoners, and they shall fall among the slain. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand 
is stretched out still. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help this evening, let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 9 and the latter portion of verse 12, which in some sense summarizes our thought for this evening. For all this, His anger is not turned away, but His hand is stretched out still. Here Isaiah, speaking of the Lord, says, For all this, the Lord's anger is not turned away, but His hand is stretched out still. Tonight, we have a unique opportunity to reflect upon a very significant event in our nation's history. It was exactly 21 years ago that the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center in New York City fell to the ground in a display of violent destruction. There was also a massive explosive attack upon the Pentagon and some, some explosions as well in western Pennsylvania. This is, for many of us, the most significant national event that we've witnessed. This is an event that has, in many respects, transformed our nation in a way that perhaps in our lifetimes we won't see again. A very significant event, something that we have a duty as creatures of God reflecting on His works of providence. We have a duty to reflect upon it and to think about it. And we're using this text this evening in order to do that. For all this, His anger is not turned away, but His hand is stretched out still. We see that refrain occurring no less than four times in the text that we just read. I think it appears previously, is it in chapter 5, somewhere thereabouts, uh, in the prophecy of Isaiah. But Isaiah repeats it for a reason, because it sums up his own divine revelation, his own message to help the people of God interpret the providential judgments of God that are taking place all around them. Now, I've no doubt that many of us have heard preachers address 9-11 in the past. Perhaps ever since this event took place 21 years ago, there's been a steadily recurring diet of sermons about this particular event Uh, some better than others. Uh, Many people quoting other portions of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah 8, verse 12, a famous one. Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy. So you have all these people that have all these theories of here's how it happened and it's the, the mainstream conspiracy, it's a Muslim conspiracy, no, it's a government conspiracy. Everybody agrees it's a conspiracy. It's just who you think you know, carried out the conspiracy, I suppose. Most people, I would probably think it's a Muslim conspiracy. But the point is, people say, well, no, Isaiah 8 verse 12 means that we should never uh, recognize that there are conspiracies in the world. Well, Isaiah 8 verse 12 doesn't say that. In fact, uh, one of the most common Hebrew words that's used in the historical events surrounding that passage in the historical books of the Old Testament is the word for conspiracy conspire. We're going to look in a moment at a number of the kings that ruled and reigned for very short periods of time, and the Scriptures say 
such and such a king reigned and they conspired against him and they killed him. So the nations have been raging and conspiring and forming confederations such as the one in this passage that uh, Isaiah is speaking about, Israel and Syria conspiring against Judah. Isaiah 7, 5, and 6 says that that's actually a conspiracy. The point of Isaiah 8, 12 is to say, stop talking about the conspiracy. People are just talking about it, reflecting on it, obsessed with it. They're, they're going on a YouTube binge. They can't stop thinking and talking about all these different nuances of conspiracy. And Isaiah, as a mouthpiece of God, is saying, stop talking about it. Fear God, who is sovereign over The conspiracy, whether it's Muslims or whether it's somebody else, God is sovereign over them. Fear Him and don't be anxious over all these conspiracies. But you sometimes hear pastors preaching on that. Sometimes you'll even hear uh, Christian pastors preaching from Isaiah 30, verse 25. Uh, I'll just read the verse because it's clear they're preaching it out of context. But it says, There will be on every high mountain and on every high hill rivers and streams of waters. And then here comes this sort of amazing uh, statement here. In the day of the great slaughter, when the towers fall. And you have these these preachers running with this passage, which of course has nothing to do with the fall of the Twin Towers on September 11th, 2001. But I think if we're to use something from Isaiah to reflect upon this momentous event in our recent history, ironically, it the, the passage I think that most is most fitting comes from Isaiah chapter 9. Not specifically verse 11, lest you think this is a conspiracy, but it does come in the surrounding verses. Starting in verse 8, when the Lord sends a word against Jacob and against Israel. And verse 9, all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. And so on and on it goes. This passage addresses a nation and a people that refuses to heed the correction and the providential judgments of God against it. A nation that is living in rebellion and idolatry and disobedience. And my friends, when bad things happen to a nation like that, we shouldn't waste our time debating whether it's correction or judgment from God. It's judgment from God. That, that's pretty much obvious. If our nation is what we know it is, and we'll, we'll think about and meditate on it a bit this evening, if our nation is in utter rebellion against God and great calamities come upon our nation... Now is not the time to make comparisons with the life of Job and how he was misrepresented by his friends. Our nation does not reflect the godliness of Job. It's the time to reflect on what Jesus said, unless we all repent, all of our towers are going to get knocked down. So we need to take it seriously as a judgment from God. That shouldn't, we're not even going to waste our time debating that point. It's a judgment from God. Not to say we know... In, in a prophetic way, specifically, God is judging this group or that group or New York versus other states. Not saying that, but it's a judgment. It's a terrible event that happened in our nation, and we ought to take it in terms of God's providential judgments in this land. But we're dealing here with a people that refuses to take that seriously. That instead of taking in 
the calamity that God's hand has brought into the life of the nation. Instead, what does it do? Well, we're going to, and I'm fast forwarding a little bit here, but uh, you know the slogans. doesn't matter the left side of the aisle, the right side of the aisle. Um, we're going to make it great again. We're going to build back better. This is a wicked, prideful nation that will not heed correction. And so Isaiah's prophecy here is supremely relevant for us this evening. Now, let's first consider its context. This takes place, this particular judgment takes place in the northern kingdom of Israel. It's a word that's sent against Jacob that has fallen on Israel. And specifically, it's dealing with Ephraim and Samaria, verse 9. So this is the northern kingdom of Israel prior to its destruction in 722 B.C. by the hands of the Assyrians. So the context here is a period of time when Israel is, is in a phase, a gradual phase of disobedience, decline, denial, just pretending all of this is not happening and ignoring all of these warning signs and ultimately destruction. It is an age of conspiracy and you can see that in the various royal administrations that take place in the northern kingdom during these years. You have Jeroboam II who is the third generation of Jehu, who was set up after the wicked idolatrous line of Ahab and Jezebel. So God sets Jehu on the throne. He wrecks shop, destroys the idolaters. But his dynasty compromises various aspects of biblical truth and biblical worship. And so you get to the third generation, Jeroboam II. And this is referred to by many as the glamour age because Israel was riding high. They were expanding, they were prospering, they had this continuous, unified regime. 41 years is is a long time for a king to reign, especially in comparison to what comes next. Because after Jeroboam II, his son Zechariah comes to the throne, the fourth generation of Jehu, and remember God said that after four generations, Jehu's line would be booted out. And that's what we see. Zechariah reigns for only six months. Uh, Like his father, he's evil. He compromises biblical worship and biblical principles. And people conspire against him and assassinate him. And so then next comes Shalom, who led that conspiracy. And we're told that he reigned for one full month. Think about that. I mean, that's the exact wording. By the way, I'm referring and summarizing from 2 Kings 15 through 17. But Shalom, he reigned for one full month. Amazing how it's put that way. Because, I mean, you think, well, only one month. The previous king, a couple removed, had reigned for 41 years. But he reigns for a whole month. What an accomplishment. But it's a very unstable time. The last guy was six months. He gets assassinated. Shalom rules for one month. He's evil. He's conspired against, he's assassinated, and perhaps people are now saying the end is near. We're rebelling against God, the government's unstable, time to prepare for the apocalypse. But the next regime, Menachem, Menachem reigns for 10 years and dies of natural causes. So 
there's something of stability restored. Not 41 years, but 10 years. That's a long time if the last guy reigned one full month. And Menachem dies in his bed. He's not assassinated. And his son, Pekahiah, takes over. And he rules for two years. But then he's evil and he's assassinated. They, they conspire against him. And again, people are saying the end is near. Here it is. Apocalypse now. It's coming. And the person who assassinated Pekahiah, his name, interestingly, is Pekah. And he rules for 20 years. So you have these periods of time where there, there are very brief reigns and then there are very long reigns and, and at any moment you think, well, now it's stabilizing or you think now it's destabilizing and it's impossible to predict when the end will come. And I think, by the way, that's something for, for us to reflect upon. We can look at many of the turbulent events in our own day and we think, well, here it comes. You go on YouTube and if you search, I, I would guess if you searched, um, I don't know, November 2022. There's a lot of videos that would say that that's the end. Everything's going to end and we'll have martial law and I'll be in a FEMA camp together or something like that. Um, 20 years, Pekka reigned. So you thought it was unstable. Now 20 years of stability. But again, he's evil and they conspire. Uh, well, he, he conspires with Syria to try to assassinate the king of Judah to the south. He's eventually attacked and subdued by the king of Assyria. And because of that, they conspire to kill him. And he's assassinated after 20 years. And then we find King Hosea, whose name means salvation. And the Bible says that he was less evil than the other guys. So here's the, as it, as it said, the lesser of two evils. Here's the guy who's not as bad as the other guys. And certainly... This less evil king is going to be the savior, the deliverer, but it's under his rule, nine years into it, that God drops the hammer and Assyria conquers the northern kingdom of Israel, takes the people into captivity, and resettles the land with foreigners that he had taken captive from other lands. And so now you have this sort of idolatrous mixed group that eventually became the Samaritans and worshipped idols and, and so on and so forth. So this is a dark time. This is a gloomy time. Isaiah chapter 9 tells us in those years prior to the birth of Christ that in this northern portion of the land of Israel, it would be full of gloom and distress and affliction and oppression and darkness. And that's exactly what we see 2 Kings uh, chapter 17, I believe it is, summarizes this gradual historical judgment of the northern kingdom by highlighting how many times God warned them. How gradual His judgment was. He would bring a judgment, He would warn them, they would disobey. You can read it in the minor prophets, and in this case, one of the major prophets, Isaiah. Time and time again, they, they, they experience God's judgment they ignored God's judgment and they disobeyed and continued to walk in their own ways, to do what is right in their own eyes. And eventually, the time was up and God brought His judgment upon them. And that's really the theme of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 12. For all this, His anger is not turned away, but His hand is stretched out still. 
And so God brings this judgment to get our attention, to wake us up. We don't listen. And His hand is stretched out. His anger is still there. He continues to manifest His wrath because His people just are not listening. And that's the message that Isaiah has for us. And, and what does it mean when he says, for all this, His anger is not turned away? What is the this? All this. Well, I think, for starters, it means the sins of the people that continued. On account of these sins and their continuance, even in the face of judgments and warnings, you'll recall around the time of September 11, 2001, that was my first year at uh, Moody Bible Institute, and I recall all the many things that were going on in the city of Chicago at the time. Perhaps some of you recall the events surrounding it and how so many people, probably more so than if the same thing happened today, so many people were calling on God and there were these prayer meetings uh, unfortunately, that th- those prayer meetings involve people of different faiths and different religions and idolatrous prayer meetings of that sort. But people were in some sense turning to God and church attendance increased and people were taking seriously God in all of this. They had questions, not always the best answers, but there was something of a consciousness of God in all of what was taking place. As I said, I I wonder if that would be the case today. It seems like when when things happen today, and I'm saying mainstream consciousness of God in all these things, that seems to be on the decline in our day. But for all this, what are the things that continued? What is the rebellion and the disobedience that provoked the anger of God to continue and to not be turned away against the people? Well, our text tells us first that it was pride. Uh, We already alluded to this, Ephraim and Samaria, verse 9, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild them with hewn stones. In other words, God knocked down their tower and they're going to rebuild it. And I just forgive me, but it's just the perfect slogan. They're going to build it back better. And that's what they're saying here. You knock down our sycamores, you cut down our sycamores, we're going to replace them with cedars. We're going to make it great again, we're going to make it greater again, we're going to build it back better. And the pride of this, the rebellion of this, as if, as if a child uh, is punished by their parents and they refuse to humble themselves and they just say, well, that's fine, if I'm grounded for a week... Whatever, I'm going to make the most of it and I'm going to have the time of my life regardless of what you say. There's no sense of guilt. There's no sense of demerit or punishment. It's just utter rebellion. We're going to actually make the best of this. We're going to make it even better than it was. Rebellion in the face of divine judgment. And we need to be careful about that. So much of the patriotic mantras that you hear that we've been hearing for the last 21 years so much of this is idolatrous and rebellious against God nothing wrong with loving our country but the fact of the matter is our country is in rebellion against God so where is our solidarity where is our loyalty ultimately we as a nation need to stop saying things like I'm proud to be an American We can be grateful to be an American. We can thank God that He hasn't judged us more and He's been patient and we have all the many blessings and freedoms 
and prosperity that we have, grateful to be an American, but proud to be an American. The babies that we slaughter, the injustice and the wickedness in our land from top to bottom, not just the politicians, that's, that's low-hanging fruit, that's an easy one to critique, but, but us as a nation, as a civilization, as a society, our wicked, godless, selfish priorities. Proud to be an American, that, that's a problem. That's the kind of mentality that's rebuked here. Also, defiance. Again, these are all intermixed with each other, but verse 13, for the people do not turn to Him who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. So as I mentioned, there was some sort of temporary response to 9-11 at one point early on in the wake of that national tragedy. But for the most part, uh, the two decades since then, has seen an immense decline in consciousness of God in public society. Uh, And whatever consciousness there is, it's it's a negative consciousness. It's an opposition to the idea of God. It's an opposition in both parties. I just heard uh, uh, Reverend Ralph Rebant speak the other night at a a pro-life fundraiser, and he talked about how the Republican Party had basically labored in many ways to silence his campaign because they believed that he would listen to God more than he would listen to them. So for, for those that are flying the Republican banner high, be careful with that because oftentimes it's, it's both parties opposing the will of God. Defiance. Uh, refusing to look at God's judgment and humble ourselves and turn to Him who strikes us. That's why God strikes us. He strikes us so that we'll humble ourselves and turn to Him. Because whatever wound He inflicts, He heals. He is full of grace and mercy. If He truly hated us, He would just give us over. And there wouldn't be 9-11s. There wouldn't be national judgments by which He sounds the alarm clock for us to wake up. It's gracious, but we refuse we put the pillow over our faces. We cover ourselves with the blankets. We close the shades. You know, we hit the snooze button like Pharaoh. How many plagues is it going to take? Ten plagues, and he still hasn't learned, and he drowns in the bottom of the Red Sea. Defiance. Refusing to acknowledge the sovereign God who is speaking to us through these tragic events. Thirdly, corruption. At every level. Corruption at every level. You have corruption in the civil government or the state. Verse 14. Therefore the Lord will cut off head and tail from Israel. Verse 15. The elder and honorable, he is the head. That's talking about the state. Talking about the civil government. Verse 16. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and those who are led by them are destroyed. So you have these wicked civil governments. They had tribal leaders. They had a whole system of government in the northern kingdom of Israel, but you had the king at the top. And from the top to the bottom, they were enacting policies that were unjust, that promoted idolatry and promoted evil, and the entire nation was led astray. You see chapter 10, verse 1, Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune. What does that say? They're writing laws that are bad for the country. 
They're enacting legislation because of their own unjust, unrighteous, greedy agendas. They don't care about the people. They sweet-talk the people to stir them into a frenzy of support, but ultimately they're doing things that are harming the very people that are supporting them. They're writing misfortune. You can read the bills that they're writing. It may be 5,000 pages, but you could just write it out. You might as well just write it out. Misfortune. That's what's happening. They're hurting people. They're hurting families. They're hurting people financially. They're hurting businesses. They're hurting the religious and moral consciousness of the nation. Writing misfortune, which they have prescribed. Notice they're not taking their cue from the law of God, from God who is the sovereign creator who made us in His image, who has revealed His will to us. He's the one who established civil government. He's the one who delegates that authority to enforce His Ten Commandments. But instead, they write misfortune which they have prescribed. My friends, if ever there was an argument for the law of God, just look at the alternative. Just Look at, look at the news. See what's happening in a nation that ignores the law of God and the misfortune and the calamity and the chaos that has resulted. If you want an argument for the Ten Commandments, just look at a nation that has trampled them underfoot and say, is this the kind of nation that I want to live in? Is this the trajectory that I'm looking for? I would say, in some sense, whether you're a Christian or not, you can at least say that you're probably not satisfied with what you see around you. To rob the needy of justice and to take what is right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey, that they may rob the fatherless. In other words, taking advantage of the vulnerable. Taking advantage of people that cannot really represent themselves in a proportional way to the more powerful to, to the politically powerful, to the financially equipped people. They're taking advantage of those that are vulnerable, whether it's babies in the womb, whether it's the poor, whether, whatever it is. They're doing things that line their own pockets, that promote their own agendas, and bring misfortune to those that really can't do much for themselves. And that's what we see. That's the human heart. Satan's not creative. It's looked the same in Isaiah's day down to our own day. It's pretty much the same old stuff again and again and again. Corruption. But it's not just the state. We have a temptation. We're going to blame the government. Let's, you know, some people think the government's the solution to everything. Other people think we should blame the government for everything. And, and both of these things are wrong. Isaiah condemns the church as well. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 14. The Lord will cut off head and tail from Israel. Well, we've seen the head is the elder, the honorable, these civic leaders. But who is the tail? Verse 15, the prophet who teaches lies. He is the tail. God's prophets were to speak His word to represent His agenda and to turn the world upside down, to blaze a trail of godliness and truth in society, to call out injustice and wickedness. But instead, instead of blazing a trail, these prophets were you know, filling out the rear. Uh, they, were, they were just basically following the lead of the wicked political leaders who were the head, and the church was the tail. 
Those proclaiming the Word of God were just following in the footsteps of the world, conforming to its patterns, lining their pockets with favors probably from the king and from the civil government, and they were the tail. The tail end of everything. And again, we see in our nation, is that not the case? That at a time like this, when God has brought judgments, and we'll look at some of the ones He's brought since 9-11, but the judgments that He's been bringing, isn't it time for the church to stand up and take the lead and bring a prophetic witness and a prophetic message to call the church herself, first and foremost, to repentance? But is that what is happening in most of the pulpits? Is that, you know, we need to examine ourselves, be careful, is that what we're doing? Or are we kowtowing and conforming to the the sensibilities of the world and simply falling in line with what others are desiring us to say or not say? There was corruption in the church as well, not just in the state. And there was corruption among the general populace as well. Verse 17, midway through the verse, for everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. So it's not just the leadership in the state or in the church, but right down to the grassroots level of individuals and families and local communities, the heart of this people was corrupt. Indeed, as Isaiah says in his first chapter, from from the head to the foot, the entire person of the people were corrupted. And specifically, they're hypocrites. They're putting on a good face, as it were, on social media, look at me, but in their hearts and in their private lives is wickedness and perversion. Why is it that in our society, more than ever before, we see sexual abuse? We see these, these horrific, oppressive things happening back in the back corners and in the shadows and it comes to light. Why are, why are these things happening? It's not because of the church or because of the state. It's because Americans, we ourselves, the, the, the population of this country is wicked and hard-hearted and hypocritical and perverse and evil. And, and out of that evil heart, every mouth speaks folly. Very little substance very little that is said. I mean, you, you, you look in one sense, the, we, we're witnessing the destruction of the English language, which I know if you're into grammar, you could probably say most of my sermons accomplish that sometimes. But we're seeing an utter, an utter collapse even of our own language, our own national conversation, the ways in which we communicate, the ways in which we express ourselves in so many ways. It's just utter folly, frivolity, Nothing of substance. How much do we hear about eternity? How often do we hear about death and what comes afterward? Uh, How much do we hear about God and about truth and about righteousness? You don't hear about these absolute, substantial, moral, religious, ethical categories hardly at all anymore. Why is that? We've become frivolous. We've become foolish. We've become vain. Like... A cloud that comes and goes. Well, for all this, for all of these sins, and we're told that His anger is not turned away, His hand is stretched out still. What does it mean when it says God's hand? Now, of course, 
unlike the Mormons, we believe God is a spirit. John 4, 24. We don't believe God has hands and feet and, and that he's just a, a big man in the sky. But we do believe that the Bible speaks to us about God in a way that we as humans can understand. And when it speaks of his hand, here it's referring to his hand of judgment, his power. If, if somebody was going to retaliate against you, maybe uh, you said something to them that they didn't like, and uh, of course we're not condoning this, but maybe they get angry with you and they just clocked you with their right hand. God's hand of judgment. Unlike that scenario, this is, this is a just judgment. And we can see in this text, God's hand of opposition. Verse 11, Therefore the Lord shall set up the adversaries of Rezin against him. Rezin is the head of Syria. So it's saying Israel, probably during the reign of Pekah, the 20-year reign of Pekah at this, at this stage, he's saying that Israel had sought to make an alliance with Rezin, but in fact, Rezin would be turned against Israel. The Syrians and the Philistines who had been their allies would be conquered by Assyria, would be absorbed into the Assyrian army and empire, and then would attack Israel and bring about its downfall. But notice very clearly the judgment of God's opposition is this. He'll turn, he'll, he'll turn enemies against you. He'll raise up enemies. He'll raise up adversaries. And do we not see that in our own day? Do we not see in our own day more and more, especially in recent years and months, enemies being raised up throughout the world? Military conflicts. Nations with whom we might not have had a great friendship, but in some sense there was peace, there was some mutual respect, and now all of that is gone. Borders are being crossed. Sanctions are being imposed. Mutual sanctions in in this bloodbath of economic warfare that is taking place. More and more enemies are being raised up. That's the hand of God's opposition against Israel and against any nation such as our own. And if you look carefully there, you'll see that this opposition is nothing to take lightly. They shall devour Israel with an open mouth. In addition, we see God's hand of cutting off. Uh, It says in verse 14, He's going to cut off the head and the tail. The state and the church. The leadership that has become corrupt and rebellious and compromising. He's going to cut them off. He's going to remove them from office. He's going to bring judgment by His hand against those who wield in their hand the scepter of power over the people. He's going to, with His hand, cut them off. Chapter 10, verse 3, What will you do? Those who decree unrighteous decrees, shed innocent blood, defend laws that shed innocent blood, what will you do? What are you going to do? That's what God is saying. That's what Isaiah is saying. What are you going to do in the day of punishment and in the desolation which will come from afar? As God raises up these wicked nations against Israel to judge them, what are you going to do? To whom will you flee for help? You see many people today trying to figure out, well, which country can I move to? Where can I, how can I escape? Maybe I'll move to you know, some uh, 
red state or blue state or wherever they align politically. People are relocating. They're moving to other states. They're moving to other parts of the country. And like never before. Uh, But the fact of the matter is, I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing that. I'm not saying you shouldn't relocate or whatever. But you see the general tendency to think in some sense that uh, we can flee for help. That we can flee somewhere. Now, if, if you're a Christian and you're relocating, that's one thing. But you see many non-Christians relocating. And the fact is, if you turn your back against the Lord Jesus Christ, what will you do when His judgment comes? Where are you going to flee when He raises up that historical judgment on our nation or that eternal judgment at the last day? You can't, uh, you, you can't get away. You can run, but you can't hide. And really, you can't run either because he's there. They thought they could run. He's saying there's nowhere to go because God will chase you down. Also, we see God's hand of rejection. God's hand of rejection. As it were, God says to them, talk to the hand. God's not going to rejoice over them anymore as his covenant people. He has rejected them. Verse 17, Therefore the Lord will have no joy in their young men, nor have mercy on their fatherless and widows. So you see the Lord here is rejecting the older generation. The ones who ought to be revered and celebrated and esteemed and respected and taken care of. And and of course, rightly so. But God is saying, I've rejected the older generation. Uh, If you think the problem is, well, we just need to go back to 50 years ago, God says nonsense. You have been a rebellious people for generations. And I reject the old generation. I'm not going to celebrate them. I'm not going to care for them and be merciful to them. My friends, sometimes we get the wrong idea as if God's justice in some way is uncomfortable with judging certain types of people in certain types of situations. Let me tell you, the flood drowned everybody. The infants, the elderly, the handicapped, everybody except for Noah and his household. There is one name under heaven by which we must be saved. Apart from that, apart from faith in Christ as individuals or thinking collectively as a nation, without Him, verse 4, without me, they shall bow down among the prisoners. So God is not rejoicing over the younger generation. He's not particularly uh, concerned with the older generation. And think about that, the younger generation. Uh, We just saw before the service, we announced the birth of a child. We rejoice when children are born. And uh, we're trying to protect infants in the womb because we love these little babies. We want to see them come into this world and live a meaningful life to the glory of God. And we celebrate. That's exciting. The young generation, they rise up. We have parties to celebrate their graduation from high school, from college, their weddings. and There's so much to celebrate as God gives maturity to the younger generation and they're raised up. And yet God says, talk to the hand of rejection. I'm not going to celebrate this younger generation. I'm not going to rejoice over it. I am angry. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And it is as well a hand of division. Verse 19, 
He talks about the land being burned up. Burned up by what? Burned up by division and hate and envy. End of verse 19, no man shall spare his brother. And he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. He shall devour on the left hand and not be satisfied. Every man for himself. We're seeing that now more than ever. We have probably less of a connection with our neighbors and the people in our community than ever before in this land. There is division. There is resentment. There is anger. When we're driving on the roads, there's road rage. Or we're angry at our neighbor for something. There's bitterness in our neighborhoods, in our communities. Political strife. Riots. Violence. Hatred. Polarization in the state. In the church. Denominations. Congregations. Splitting. Angry. Selfish. Devouring one another. Every man for himself. Every man shall eat the flesh of his own arm. It's self-defeating. Manasseh shall devour Ephraim, and Ephraim Manasseh. Together they shall be against Judah. Just look on a national scale, the division within our land, to the point where people are talking about there's going to be a new civil war, there's going to be secessions from the Union, all these different states on different issues, red states, blue states. We're going to be a sanctuary city for this, that, and the other, nullifying federal laws. There is great division now more than ever before, my friends. And out of all of this, we see one clear doctrine ringing true. A nation that will not repent in response to divine judgment will incur greater judgment. That is absolutely a fact. That is taught by our text. A nation that will not repent in response to divine judgment will incur greater judgment judgment. We mentioned Pharaoh with the ten plagues. I mean, God just increasingly causes the mercury to rise with each plague till He eventually slaughters all the firstborn sons in Egypt and then drowns Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. If we don't respond with repentance, we will incur greater judgment. Let me give you one example of that. There's an example in uh, Amos chapter 4, Amos chapter 4, listen to this, I want you to begin to think about our nation right now, we're going to say something about it in just a moment, God says this, Amos 4, 6, also I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, that's another, that's another figure of speech for a famine, right, cleanness of teeth, it's kind of clever, but cleanness of teeth in all your cities, and lack of bread in all your places, yet you have not returned to me. Literally, you have not repented toward me, says the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when there were still three months to the harvest. I made it rain on one city. I withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon, and where it did not rain, the part withered. So two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water, but they were not satisfied Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. So there's a famine. There's a drought. Sound familiar? That's happening in our country. It's happening throughout the world at this very moment. He says, I blasted you with blight and mildew. When your gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees, the locusts devoured them. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Plagues. Pestilence. We see that. 
I sent among you a plague after the manner of Egypt. We've seen that. Pandemic. Your young men I killed with the sword. Along with your captive horses, I made the stench of your camps come up into your nostrils, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning, yet you have not returned to me. God says, I brought massive judgment, but I spared you. And you didn't respond to my goodness and forbearance with repentance. A nation that will not repent in response to divine judgment will incur greater judgment. And that's why he says in verse 12, Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Prepare to meet your God. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it's greater judgment. And I think really it's referring to the judgment by the Assyrians, which utterly devastated and destroyed the nation. So, if we don't repent, we incur greater judgment. Let's bring this to an application before we close. First, this applies to our nation. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, these principles are principles by which God governs the nations of the world, the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is applying these principles to us today, and so this applies to our nation. It applies in terms of divine judgment. Think not just of the towers falling at 9-11, but think of the, the unjust and at, at, at least unwise and bloody wars that followed in the Middle East that most people today would look back and say, that was not a good idea. Think of the Patriot Act. Of course, today they've named Patriot Day. But you think of the Patriot Act where so many of our national freedoms have been frittered away so that the government has freedom to spy on its own citizens without any sort of warrant whatsoever. So we've lost our freedoms. We've engaged in costly and unwise, unjust wars. We've seen sodomite marriage become the law of the land. We've seen a collapse economically, the Great Recession in 2008, which we basically just printed enough money to, to, to re-blow up the bubble. And uh, now we have a national debt that has risen from 2001. It was $5.7 trillion. Now it's nearly $31 trillion. And big surprise, we have an inflation problem that is not very likely, not speaking prophetically, probably not going to change anytime soon. So we've basically gone through divine judgment after divine judgment, and that's not even mentioning 2020 with all of the, uh, I mean, where do you start? You have COVID, you have all of the COVID restrictions, you have so much of the violence and the political tension and the election controversy, and it still continues today, the aftermath and the ongoing problems. We've, we've seen a global recession economically throughout the entire world. We've seen human trafficking on the rise. We have something of climate change, whether that's induced by humans is another debate, but we have issues with the climate. We have immigration problems. We have crime at an all-time high in our cities. We have droughts and famines. Be prepared to budget for your, your food budget in the next six months. It's coming according to scientists 
monitoring the global food supply and the supply chains. We have an energy crisis. And if you haven't gotten the memo, we're now basically in World War III. Russia has invaded Ukraine. China is basically on the verge of invading and, and taking ownership of Taiwan. And now Russia is denying heat and energy to Europe for the winter. Economically, we, ha- we are right smack dab in the middle of World War III at this very moment. And that, if that's controversial, then you need to change your, your media sources. That's happening. And even now in the state of Michigan, we're at the place where we have an opportunity to end abortion. We have a law that prohibits it. And coming up in November, there's an opportunity for the state of Michigan to open wide the gates for more abortion than you've ever thought possible. Basically, if there's any shred of concern about a woman's physical, mental health, regardless of her life being in jeopardy, abortion can be performed at any stage of the pregnancy. This is, this is utterly horrific. So, I mean, if that passes, I mean, just think of the judgments of God that are taking place and the things that are presently hanging in the balance. These things have not yet impacted our daily lives like they will, but gradually it's coming and it already is here. So this applies to our nation and you look at the stubborn impenitence, fighting against it, thinking we can build it back, thinking that we can make it great again. The, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly of American politics is all centered on this theme. We can do it. We can solve it. We can fix it without Christ. So there's the same stubborn impenitence, and my friends, the greater judgment seems to be looming on the horizon. Second application, repentance begins in the church. We cannot remain the tail. If we continue to be the tail, if we continue to let the wicked politicians on the left and on the right continue to lead the way, set the agenda, set the vocabulary, set the everything, the nomenclature of the whole debate, we are going to fail. We need to stop following and we need to start leading. The world is upside down and we need to turn it right side up. And finally, the only way we can do that is through the gospel of Jesus Christ in its pervasive application throughout all of life. Only Christ can save us. Notice we're told that Judah, or Israel rather, is doomed to judgment. Why? Chapter 10 and verse 4, 3 and 4, without me. Without me, without Christ, without God, we have no hope. And it's interesting in these chapters of Isaiah, uh, the end of Isaiah chapter 8, we're told that eventually in this doom and gloom scenario, the people become so disillusioned with the head and with the tail. Uh, We're told, verse 21, it shall happen when they're hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their gods, should be plural there, and look upward. My friends, that's what we need. When the hunger comes, when the supply chains break down, when the additional, further, greater judgment comes, now is the time to point people upward 
to say, okay, you're disillusioned. You're cursing the politicians. You're cursing your gods and your pursuits and your worldly luxury that you've lived for. You need to look upward. You need to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. For unto us, chapter 9, verse 6, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. And we're told that he will gain the victory, verse 5, as in the days of Midian. It wasn't a majority. It wasn't an earthly, a prominent, impressive earthly army that, that led the charge with Gideon and the 300 men. It was simply a small remnant of people who trusted in the Lord. It was by faith that they gained the victory following Gideon into battle. And it is by faith, not following Hosea and the lesser of two evil kings, but following Jehoshua, the Lord, who is our salvation. Following Him into battle. And conquering kingdoms and subduing nations and doing it by faith. John says, how do we overcome the world? By faith. What does that mean? In conclusion, what does that mean? It means living your Christian life. It means living your Christian life right now, in the trenches, in your family, praying, reading the Bible every day, bearing witness as you have opportunity. Though it may be unimpressive in the eyes of the world, that is what threatens Satan the most. Every Christian acting like a Christian every day, not anxious because of the conspiracies, but plodding hand to the plow advancing the kingdom of Christ in their own life, in their family, in their friends, in their neighbors, seeking to do the will of God in the calling that He's given you. Faith. Faith is something everyone can do. Everyone in here today can believe. And your faith can work itself out through love and obedience to God. This this afternoon we listened to four professions of faith. uh, And we're bringing in five new members next Lord's Day. We heard four people in the last couple of weeks. We've heard four people profess their faith. And my friends, it has been encouraging. This afternoon, we heard three of those professions. It was a great encouragement to my soul. Why? Because God did some amazing thing throughout the entire world. No, because God granted faith to these individuals miraculously, supernaturally, you could see it. You could see the evidence. You could see the zeal and the love for Christ. You could see the genuineness, as far as we can tell, the genuineness of a heart of faith. And my friends, the same God who does that can turn the world upside down in an instant. He doesn't need a majority. He needs Gideon. He needs 300 people that are consecrated by faith, to subdue kingdoms, and to pull down strongholds in the name of Christ. And my friends, we need to believe. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are God. We bless Your name. We could not live anxiety-free apart from You. And whatever we see in our nation that seems to be negative, we know You're working it for good. We thank You for these judgments. We thank You for these wake-up calls. And we pray that You would raise up Your church as a giant alarm clock through our godliness to awaken this land to Your wrath and judgment that we may repent and turn to You for mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.